The day before International Women's Day in 2015, five young women were arrested in China. They'd been handing out stickers on buses to stand up against sexual harassment in public transport, and they became known as the Feminist Five. They're part of a movement of civil rights lawyers, labour activists, performance artists and online warriors who are posing a huge challenge to China's authoritarian government. Later, Hong Finch's book is called Betraying Big Brother, The Feminist Awakening in China, and it's a story of how the movement against patriarchy could reconfigure China and, by extension, the world. In conversation with Fauzi Ibrahim at All About Women, later discusses the possibility of a feminist future in China. Thank you. Thank you so much. I'd like to express my deep gratitude to the Sydney Opera House All About Women Festival for inviting me here. It's such an honor to be speaking in this uh, incredible building that I have admired my entire life. Um, And thank you to everybody for coming. So um, I want to uh, give you a little bit of background on the central characters um, of this book. There are five women known as the Feminist Five. Um, And what happened was that in uh, 2015, there was a group of feminist activists, perhaps about 100 or so in different Chinese cities, who were planning to celebrate International Women's Day by handing out stickers against sexual harassment on subways and buses. But before they were even able to carry out that activity, Chinese police rounded up a a whole bunch of feminist activists in different cities. And then after one day, they focused on five young women um, in, in Beijing, Hangzhou, and Guangzhou, and brought them to the same detention center in Beijing, where they were held for uh, 37 days. And it looked as though they were going to be criminally prosecuted for disturbing the social order. So um, here are the the five women here, um, Li Maizi on the upper left, Wu Rongrong upper right, Wang Man, Wei Tingting, and Zheng Chuan. Now, in, uh, in deciding to jail these five women four years ago, almost exactly four years ago to this day, The Chinese government thought that it would be able to wipe out the possibility of a large-scale feminist movement. But that move drastically backfired uh, because the feminist community had been really quite small prior to that time. Um, And let me just give you an example of some of the activities that these young women had been involved in. Um, They had been active for years, so these are two examples From 2012, um, the upper picture was the Bloody Brides, uh, what they called performance art, which was drawing attention to the epidemic of intimate partner violence in China. Um, These three young women paraded downtown in in Beijing wearing their white wedding gowns, uh, stained with faux red blood and carrying signs like, love is no excuse for domestic violence. Um, Another action that they organized below Um, Occupy Men's Toilets, that was in Guangzhou in 2012, where a group of these feminists took over men's public toilet and then invited women to use the vacated men's stalls, just to draw attention to the fact that there are never enough toilets for women. (laughs) So the thing is that that action actually received quite a lot of positive media attention from the Chinese state-run news organizations like Xinhua News and and the People's Daily. So in the years leading up to 2015, these young feminist activists had never gotten into any serious trouble with the authorities before. They uh, were very deliberate about choosing issues that they thought were not politically sensitive. Um, So that's why it was such a huge shock when suddenly, you know, these five women were jailed and they hadn't even done anything. They were just planning to hand out these stickers on sexual harassment. Now, as soon as the women were jailed, um, there was a massive global outcry. Um, You have, for example, this tweet from Hillary Clinton at the time 
Uh, she was considered to be the front runner for the U.S. presidency. And she says here, see hosting a meeting on women's rights at the U.N. while persecuting feminists. Shameless. Now, what she's referring to was that um, in just several months after the jailing of these women, President Xi Jinping was supposed to co-host uh, the 20th anniversary World Meeting on Women's Rights at the UN in New York, marking um, the 20th anniversary of the landmark 1995 Beijing Conference on Women's Rights, um, at which, of course, Hillary Clinton famously said that women's rights are human rights. So it, it was just the, the, the hypocrisy was so blatant of President Xi hosting this, this meeting um, designed to promote women's rights while these five young women were sitting in jail. And it looked as though they, they could be facing a jail term of five years or even more at the time. Um, now, inside China, there was also a solidarity campaign on Weibo, which is China's equivalent of Twitter, where supporters of the Feminist Five started posting each day. They would post a picture, and here are a couple of examples on the upper right. Um, you have five women wearing the masks of the Feminist Five crossing the road, um, kind of modeled after the Beatles' Abbey Road album cover. Um, and, and it said, the first day of detention of the feminist activists. And each day, there would be posting different pictures of five women, all wearing the masks of the feminist five, posing in public, showing that the women um, in these pictures had freedom of movement. They had, you know, the freedom to do whatever they want out uh, claiming public space while the real women were actually languishing away in jail and had no idea what was going on on the outside world. Um, I detail in the book a lot of some of the harrowing mistreatment of the women in detention. Um, but uh, as a result of this enormous global outcry, it wasn't just world leaders, there were also a lot of supporters using the hashtag free the five. The Chinese government came under a lot of pressure and released the women after 37 days. Um, so uh, we're going to talk a little bit more about that, but I also want to give you the backdrop to uh, what has been a huge resurgence of gender inequality in China in recent years, which has really accelerated, particularly under the current president, Xi Jinping. And um, I write about what I call China's patriarchal authoritarianism. Um, and there's this, uh, a lot of people have talked about the personality cult surrounding the Chinese president, Xi Jinping. Um, but the thing is, it's a very much a hyper-masculine personality cult that presents him as a really macho, manly man. Um, that top picture is a screenshot from a hip-hop video called, uh, and the song is called, If You Want to Marry, Marry Someone Like Si Dada, which is what he used to be called, and it roughly translates to Big Daddy Si. Um, but, then, but then other party officials later on thought that maybe the personality cult was going just a little bit too far, so they, they stopped calling him that. Um, nonetheless, the whole hyper-masculinity presenting him as this strong man ruling over, you know, a, a lot of male-dominated patriarchal families, um, that that's really important to maintaining the political stability of the country. So um, another example is that when Xi Jinping became the general secretary of the Communist Party, his first major speech in January 2013 talked a lot about why it was that communism collapsed in the Soviet Union and across Eastern Europe. And this really stood out. He said, the Soviet Communist Party had more members than we do, but nobody was man enough to stand up and resist. So, 
So one of the things that the Communist Party does through its propaganda now is, first of all, it presents um, Xi as this very strongman authoritarian who's defending the Chinese nation from perceived threats from so-called hostile foreign forces, um, emphasizing the importance of masculinity, that the men and boys are supposed to be very tough, masculine and macho to defend the country. Meanwhile, women um, are supposed to be, you know, behaving in these very traditionally feminine ways. And so in recent years, uh, propaganda has very aggressively pushed particularly educated women to return to the home, to play the wife, uh, uh, the role of dutiful wife and mother. Here are just a couple of examples of the propaganda that you see. This was from the People's Daily um, in 2017 with the headline, you'd better believe it, under 30 are women's best years for getting pregnant. And this entire article is aimed at young women who are still in college, um, telling them that they should really think about having two babies while they're still in college. Um, because China, uh, two years ago, or at the beginning of 2016, um, abolished its one, long-standing one-child policy and then adopted a new two-child policy. So, um, the subheading for this article was female university students' joyful love. Freshman year, live together. Sophomore year, get pregnant. Junior year, have baby. And um, the images are, are supposed to be, you know, attractive to these uh, educated young women. They're all, you know, kind of gathering around this baby carriage um, as though it's every woman's dream to just have that baby while they're still really young. And on the right, um, accompanying this, this article was a picture of, you know, a very attractive college graduate who had already had not just one child who she's carrying in one arm, but with her other hand, she's, it's resting on a visibly pregnant belly. So that's an example of the kinds of propaganda that are just totally bombarding young women in China today. And it's not just aimed at the young women, it's particularly aimed at the women's parents, because the parents are the ones who, you know, most directly pressure their daughters to get married and have babies. Um, so I, uh, just the last slide here, I want to get back to this feminist movement that I focus on in the book. Um, this feminist movement is really extraordinary. So after the jailing of the feminist five, which the, the government thought would be able to wipe out the possibility of a feminist movement, it actually did the opposite. It angered so many young women, and not just women, there were also young men who were really angered. Um, there were even male factory workers who had been helped by some of the feminist activists and their labor rights activism. Um, and so they all came out in solidarity. It really galvanized the feminists inside China, and the movement actually began to grow remarkably. Um, and you have to remember, for those of you who don't really know, uh, China is a police state. There is no internet freedom. There is massive, the, it's the world's most aggressive uh, system of internet censorship and monitoring. There is no freedom of assembly. You can't just go out and protest uh, without, you know, being arrested. Um, there is no press freedom. So all of those factors that were critical to getting the Me Too movement going or that hashtag going viral globally um, in, in, I believe, October 2017, none of those systemic factors are present in China. And yet, at the beginning of, of 2018 in China, um, there were women who started posting detailed online accounts of how they had been sexually harassed or assaulted, um, starting with the university students um, who uh, who wrote details about how their professor had sexually assaulted them. And then it kind of gained momentum from there, and, and it just spread. Um, and there were even thousands of university students and recent graduates who signed their real names to petitions 
calling on universities across China to take sexual harassment and sexual assault seriously. So uh, there was a study that was just released a few weeks ago that showed that the Me Too hashtag in China was one of the top 10 censored uh, items on the China's internet last year. Um, so the barriers to this women's movement are just incredible in China. And that is why the fact that this movement, four years after the jailing of the Feminist Five, the movement still, not only does it still exist, in many ways um, it is still gaining momentum in spite of ongoing, really intense persecution of individual feminist activists. Last year, the most prominent feminist social media account, Feminist Voices, was banned along with its WeChat account. Um, WeChat is, uh, is the most popular group messaging app in China. Um, and yet these young feminists, and, and not just feminists, it's just become so much broader so that there are a lot of ordinary young women, um, largely college-educated, edu but not confined to university-educated women. There are also high school girls who are starting to embrace feminism. There are also factory women workers who are also speaking out more about um, sexual harassment on the job and going on the front lines of labor unrest. Um, so this is an ongoing confrontation in China. Um, and as yet, the government, this is the most powerful authoritarian regime in the world. And yet it has not managed to wipe out this women's rights movement, which to me is just extraordinary. It's a real testament to the incredible resilience, the passion and determination of these young women. Um, I want to just point you to that picture there, which is like carnivalesque. This, these were feminist activists who were actually... Uh, it was started out as mourning the banning of the site Feminist Voices from the internet. And the banner that they're flying up there says, uh, which is feminism will not die. And, and look at the, it's such a joyous picture. And this is another thing that's so remarkable about this movement is that in the face of incredible persecution, you know, women going to jail or being harassed or kicked out of their homes, you know, they still manage to find joy in the struggle and, and, and it's so inspiring. So I wanted to just conclude the prepared comments by doing a really quick reading. Um, these young feminists um, look as well to the long history of feminism in China's revolutions. And there's a particular feminist revolutionary named Qiu Jin who uh, wrote at, at the turn of the century, she was cross-dressing, wearing men's clothing. She had um, been forced into a marriage and she had two children, but then she left her husband and her two children to go to Tokyo where she started working on uh, something that a long um, kind of poem song called Stones of the Jingwei Bird. And as, I'll just read a little bit. As one version of the Chinese legend of Jingwei has it, the youngest daughter of fiery emperor Yendi was named Nuwa, meaning little girl. Nuwa longed to see the sun rise over the ocean, so she rowed in a boat out to the East Sea at dawn. As she was rowing, the cruel East Sea whipped up a heavy storm that capsized her boat and drowned her. At the moment of her death, Nuwa transformed into a magnificent bird with a white beak and large red claws, screaming out, Jingwei, Jingwei, in anger and pain. Jingwei, the soul of Nuwa, named after the sound of her anguished screams, sought revenge by picking up stones in her claws from the mountain where she used to live, flying back and dropping them into the sea each day to fill it up. The East Sea mocked Jingwei and told her to abandon her pitiful effort. You silly little bird, how could you ever dream of filling me up with those stupid stones?
but she vowed never to give up. Jingwei would persist every day for thousands of years, no matter how long it took until she succeeded in filling the sea. Qiu Jin used the myth of Jingwei as a metaphor for the struggle of Chinese women fighting for their freedom in their country. With all my heart, I beseech and beg my 200 million female compatriots to assume their responsibility as citizens. Arise, arise, Chinese women, arise, she wrote. Chinese women will throw off their shackles and stand up with passion. They will all become heroines. They will ascend the stage of the new world, where the heavens have mandated that they reconsolidate the nation. Qiu Jin herself was beheaded at the age of 31 before she could finish writing Stones of the Jingwei Bird. Her life and work have interesting parallels with the resistance of young feminists in China today, who are so often ridiculed as inconsequential little girls. The legend of Jingwei gave rise to the Chinese aphorism Jingwei Tianhai, Jingwei fills the sea, meaning perseverance in carrying out an enormous task against seemingly impossible odds. Lovely, absolutely lovely. Thank you so much for that chat. Did you want to play the video now, or? Oh my gosh! Thank you for reminding me. <laughs> I totally forgot. But could we play? So, six months after the Feminist Five were released from jail,、um, the their supporters put together a rather crudely、uh, edited video of the five women in different cities singing what has become the anthem of China's feminist movement, and it's to the tune. Of、um, uh, the the famous melody from the Broadway hit Les Misérables, but with feminist lyrics. So, so let's watch that video. Hello. 我爱我独特模样，不论它是美丑或瘦胖。我有闪光的梦想，我也有丰富的欲望。面对怀疑和嘲笑，艰难中我成长。Okay, thank you. Thanks for reminding me. Yeah, lovely. So nice to see when women actually get together and do something subversive. We're very good at that.、Um, now, Lita, perhaps if we could just start, can you just just tell us what's actually happened to the Feminist Five so far since they were released? Yeah. Well, I mean, they're still technically considered criminal suspects,、um, but I, I really think that their surprising fame. Is a form of protection for them. That that was certainly a, a big part in why the government released them.、Mm. Um, but they're constantly being monitored by the government, and so、um, some of them went abroad to study.、Um, some of them stayed inside the mainland and are, are still working in various ways, but trying to keep a low profile because、um, you know they're they're no longer.、Uh, Leaders of the women's rights movement. The thing about the women's rights movement today in China is that、um, it's really kind of full of anonymous people now. So, so the feminist five play a very important symbolic role,、um, but because of, they're so high profile, on the one hand, you know they've managed to avoid 
being jailed again. Um, but one of, one of them actually had a lot of trouble when she was trying to go to Hong Kong to study. Um, and the authorities told her, you know, what's the point? Just stay home and take care of your... She's, she's the only mother. Mm-hmm. Take care of your child. And prevented her from getting an exit permit to go to Hong Kong for the longest time. But she actually sued the authorities in two different districts, Um, where she came from and went on Weibo, um, China's equivalent of Twitter, and was posting that she was suing. And um, after the program started in Hong Kong, uh, shortly after it started, the authorities finally relented and decided to give her an exit permit. And so she's still in Hong Kong now. Mm-hmm. But they're all monitored, being monitored. They're all, yes, um, although the ones in the mainland are, are, of course, you know, much more closely watched yeah. Yeah. than those who have gone abroad to study. One of them, Li Meidze, was studying in the UK, mm. and she got a master's at the University of Essex and recently moved back to Beijing. Mm. Um, and I, uh, so far, she's fine. Um, but you just, you know, you never know. Uh, another one of them started... Um, an anti-sexual violence center that was actually really important in the Me Too movement because they did a big survey of um, sexual harassment of university women. Um, But then uh, recently the authorities forced her to close down that center as well, and so she's also lying low. Uh, But but there's so much else that's going on there. You know, there's the Feminist Five who are really quite famous, but then there are other... There are so many other women who um, have kind of uh, spoken out and um, taken on a, a higher profile role. Um, and I write about a lot of these women in the book yeah. who aren't as famous but still have incredibly compelling stories. And they're all just so courageous. I want to come back to how this movement collectively have sort of gained um, momentum. But, but before you we get into that, I want to also talk about how creative these feminists are. Given that there is no freedom of speech, as you say, Big Brother is constantly watching, but they're very creative in trying to get their word out. One of that comes manifests itself in the Rice Bunny movement. Explain to us the Rice Bunny movement. Right. So um, when uh, the first... Me Too stories started coming out at the beginning of 2018 in China. Um, The women started using the Me Too hashtag. And of course, I have to keep emphasizing, you know, this movement in China has been going on for years. So Me Too was just an excuse Mm. for the feminists to, to latch on to that seize on the global momentum of the hashtag Me Too. And so they used that hashtag. But then the internet censors very quickly just started uh, banning versions of that Me Too hashtag. And so there was one very creative, um, well, they're all really creative, but, but one, of, one of these feminists came up with the idea of using the Chinese characters Me Too, which sounds like Me Too, but means rice and bunny rabbit. So she used the emojis for a rice bowl and a bunny rabbit as a substitute for Me Too. And so then those new messages, the new stories about sexual harassment were able to circulate again But it's always a cat and mouse game in China with the internet censor. So after a while, the censors caught on and, you know, they were censoring the the rice bunny emojis as well. Mm -hmm. But then there are other ways, you know, uh, people would do things like post messages um, in blockchain technology. And don't ask me how it works, but (laughs) apparently, you know, it's permanent. Um, So it's an encoded message or, you know, turning... Uh, turning the message backwards or sideways. Um, and this is not unique to feminist activists either. Yeah. But, um, but it is a real trait of these young feminists that they use, um, they use creativity and wit a lot in their, um, in their campaigns mm. to, to raise awareness about women's rights and to popularize it, to make it something 
that a lot of ordinary women can really relate to. And that's why it's, it's become so widespread. And literally, I would say, I mean, easily millions of young women across China can really relate to those core issues of sexual harassment, sexual violence, you know, gender discrimination in university admissions, gender discrimination in the workforce, um, all of those kinds of issues affect the daily lives of young women. And so that's something that's very different about the women's rights movement that sets it apart from um, a lot of other human rights activists in the past mm. who uh, were mainly men um, who then, you know, could be jailed. Um, like Liu Xiaobo, for example, the Nobel Peace Laureate, was jailed and died in custody. But most Chinese people didn't know what he stood for. Maybe they don't even know who he is. But um, a, a hallmark of this women's rights movement is that it's not about, you know, individual heroes. It's about a collective action. It's about you know, uh, giving all women more rights and dignity. But this is where I don't understand the Chinese government's opposition to this. You know, we talk about how these women basically stood up against sexual harassment. They wanted equal rights, rights for women to be respected. It's not a political movement. So why is the Chinese government opposed to it? Yeah, well, I mean, that's an excellent question. Um, I've thought about it a lot. And I have a chapter in my book um, called China's Patriarchal Authoritarianism, where I argue that um, the Communist Party today is so paranoid about staying in power. It is haunted by the collapse of communism, particularly in the Soviet Union. And there are so many challenges that it's facing, particularly now, demographically. First of all, you have, you know, slowing economic growth. So the government can no longer promise everybody, you know, constantly rising living standards, which literally co-opted the Chinese population for decades mm. because of the so-called economic miracle. Well, that's not happening anymore. Um, demographically, the birth rates are really plummeting it sh at shocking rates. The last statistics that were issued showed the 2018 births fell to the same level, according to one demographer, that they were at during the famine of 1961. Mm -hmm. And so um, there's also severe aging of the population. So the party um, really relies on uh, pushing women into these traditional roles. Um, it really wants to push especially educated women into having babies, mm. um, into, into marriage, because they see marriage and family as a stabilizing influence um, that is conducive to political stability. They see single women. Um, a lot of the feminists are queer, by the way, or bisexual um, or uh, there, there are trans members of the feminist movement as well. Um, all of those kinds of non-normative sexualities or women who don't want to get married or don't want to have children, those kinds of women are seen as threatening, uh, in a way, threatening political stability. They're seen as causing chaos. Um, and, it, you know, th there are so many different facets to it. Um, but you also look at the political, the lack of political representation of women at elite levels um, in the, the Chinese mm -hmm. government. And I think it's very much a deliberate strategy to subjugate women. And I have to, I, I have to say that this is not unique to China. That if you yeah. see, right now we're seeing, you know, the global rise of authoritarianism. And virtually every single one of these strong man authoritarians is deeply misogynistic. They're, you know, they're really uh, rolling back women's rights or attacking them anew. And so I think there's something universally uh, true about authoritarian control that it relies on misogyny, suppressing women, um, keeping women confined to very traditional 
roles in the home, they're, you know, that way they're not causing trouble and it's the men who are supposed to go out. But anyway, so getting back to why the Chinese government sees feminists as a threat, um, the message of feminism is fundamentally threatening to autocrats mm. um, because, uh, you know, these feminists are saying to young women across China, you shouldn't have to get married or have a baby if you don't want to. You know, you should be able to control your body. You, you know, you should make your own decisions about your life. You shouldn't listen to what the government tells you to do. Um, and that's completely contrary to what the government wants. It's also very contrary to Chinese norms and Chinese society, isn't it? So, so being branded a feminist in China, does that mean you are seen as not being Chinese? That means that you, uh, uh, you subscribe to Western ideals. Well, this is the line that the Chinese government is trying to push. Um, of course, you know, there's a long tradition of, of feminism in China's own revolutionary history. Mm. Um, I mean, I talked about Xiu Jin, who was uh, writing at the turn of the century. She was, and there were other Chinese feminists involved in the Republican Revolution, um, in the overthrow of the Qing Empire, in the May 4th movement of 1919, um, and in the Communist Revolution. You know, there were these, uh, even the male Communist Party founders were feminists to begin with, and there were women who played really important roles. Um, but the thing is that um, in recent years, you know, uh, gender inequalities, they, they you at least used to have the rhetoric of gender equality in the early years of mm. the communist era. But since the onset of market reforms, gender inequality has really come roaring back in many ways. Mm. Um, so... I, want, I just want to pause our conversation for a while and just remind the audience that we will be taking um, questions from you, if you have any questions. There will be two microphones placed on either side of, of the aisle, so if you want to, uh, if you have a question, start making your way to the microphone. Just a reminder, it's a question, not a statement, not your life story. Uh, we love sharing your ideas and your arguments. Um, but please make sure there is a question mark at the end of the question and there's a point to it. So we'll wait for your questions to start coming up, microphone one and two. But in the meantime, I want to come back to this core of being, uh, of being Chinese, being Asian uh, and growing up in Singapore. I, I totally know this, this concept of you need to be Asian you need to make that distinction between being Asian and being Western, you know, that sort of thing. So I understand this concept of being Chinese and being the, having a Chinese identity, which in China, a lot of it is based on Confucius norms and Confucius uh, ideals. Are you seeing then that this movement is moving away from the Chinese identity? So if you identify yourself as a fem feminist, you are moving away from your... Chinese identity, cultural yeah. norms, your, your, your family. Right. That's what the government says. Mm. But, um, but no, I mean, these, these young women who are uh, proudly feminist today, I mean, they're also Chinese. I mean, they embrace their Chinese identity. And, um, you know, so the government has... Actually, in 2017, there was also a turning point of ratcheting up of the rhetoric against feminism as well, where um, the People's Daily had this long article where it said, quote unquote, Western feminism is being used as a tool of, quote unquote, hostile foreign forces to interfere in China's management of its own women's affairs. And so this line that if you are identifying as a feminist, that must mean you're anti-China, mm. that you're hostile to the Chinese nation. That, I mean, that is so untrue of these young women, but it's, um, it's, a, it's a tool of the security apparatus in China. So when um, security agents interrogate women who, women, or even men actually, there are men who are involved in the women's rights movement or the Me Too movement. When these young people are interrogated and intimidated by the security agents, they're often accused of being a spy 
for hostile foreign forces or working as being used by hostile foreign forces, you know, and being not Chinese. But that's, you know, that's not at all true. Now, one thing about the new propaganda coming um, from the Communist Party, particularly under Xi Jinping, is a real return to Confucian values. Now, that was completely obliterated in the early communist era under Mao Zedong, who established the People's Republic in 1949. I mean, they, they were going around in the Cultural Revolution, destroying Confucian books, you know, tearing down temples, um, fighting against these feudal Confucian beliefs. But now when it's convenient for the Communist Party, you know, for its control, consolidating its power, um, it's bringing Confucian ideals back again to push women back into these very traditional roles. But it's, it's really not working. I mean, there are so many young women, and this is why the women's rights movement is so popular, is because young women in China today are increasingly rejecting all of that pressure. It's not that they don't want to be Chinese. That has nothing to do with it. It's that they want to be treated the same as, you know, men or their, their male classmates or their male colleagues. They want to be able to take the subway or the bus without being sexually assaulted, you know, or they don't want to be raped. Um, but uh, but it, it but this is a, a tool of the of the security state to just accuse these people of being spies or being used by hostile foreign forces. You know, we talk about young women and young college women um, who are part of this this movement. What about in the rural areas? Is the movement gaining momentum there as well? What about young Chinese women in rural areas? Yeah. Well, first of all, um, China is increasingly urban. So the, it, the rural areas, a lot of young women are leaving the countryside. So, and in fact, a lot of the uh, core feminist activists came from the countryside. And then uh, quite a few of them were raised, you know, in a remote rural area, and then they studied really hard, and then they got into university. And, and so, um, uh, but uh, then there are also a lot of rural women who, even if they don't go to college, they go to the cities to work in factories. So the actual number of women who are left just living in a village is really dwindling. It has to be said that, you know, feminism is not really catching on among those women, but they're in the minority now. Yeah. And it's, um, and so there are women, factory women workers who come from the countryside and they don't have a, what they call a household registration, so they can't live permanently in the cities. But even these factory women are increasingly standing up for their rights. Some of them are suing uh, over pregnancy discrimination, um, who, who'd lost their jobs because they got pregnant, um, or are writing about you know, being sexually assaulted, um, or are demanding more rights as workers. Um, and so recently, uh, just in the last few months, there was... Um, a huge what new wave of detentions of university students, um, some of whom came out of the feminist movement. So they were very involved in the feminist movement. Uh, uh, one example is a woman named Yue Xin, who was a senior at China's, uh, one of China's most elite universities, Peking University, and she was involved in the Me Too movement. She was trying to get the university to, um, to punish a professor who had sexually assaulted a young woman years ago, but he was never, uh, the young woman ended up committed, committing suicide, but the professor was never punished for it. So she took a lead role in trying to get the university to be transparent about what happened with that case. Um, and then in the middle of the night at around 1 a.m., um, her Communist Party advisor came into her dorm room with her mother in tow and got her out of bed and forced her to delete all of her files from her computer and her phone related to her Me Too activism. 
And she wrote these very detailed online accounts of what happened to her. Mm. And then there was all these people who were supporting her online. And then, of course, there was a huge wave of censorship. And even her name, Yuesin, was censored on the internet. But then after she graduated, she went down to southern China and started unionizing factory workers. She and, and uh, a group of other university students um, who were combining feminism with labor rights activism. And um, a, a, quite a few of them are still in detention now, and we don't even know where they are. Mm. Um, so it's, a, it's an ongoing confrontation and you know, it's it's always very worrying to think what may happen. Yeah. Um, again, just to remind you, if we've got any questions, you can make your way to the microphones now and make sure that your questions do have a question mark at the end of it. Uh, just before we get to the questions, I also want to talk, you know, you mentioned the mother there, and I know the Chinese society is all about face. Um, it's all about, let's not lose face. Let's not lose face. I'm presuming a lot of these women would face a lot of pressure from their family, and it, it's a very filial society as well. So they'd face a lot of pressure from their family to just step back and not do about, um, not to progress their own rights. In your previous book, you also talked about the leftover women, the women who aren't married. How do they deal with that pressure? Yeah, I mean... Even the Feminist Five, actually, uh, when they were in detention, they described when they were repeatedly interrogated every single day, often in the middle of the night, pulled out of, you know, away from their sleep. And the security agents constantly accused them of being bad daughters. They said, how can you do this? to your parents, you're such a bad daughter. And you know, we're going to, then they started telling stories about how they were gonna punish the parents as well. And if you don't stop your activism, you know, we're gonna monitor your parents for the rest of their, their lives. We're gonna charge them with being spies. And um, that had a different effect depending on the woman. Some of the women felt deeply guilty because, mm. you know, first of all, they had no idea what was going on with their parents. Um, but that that strong tradition of filial piety is, is still very much there, even among these radical feminist activists. Um, and with more ordinary women, it's... Um, uh, well, actually, not before I get to the ordinary women. Any kind of young activist in China um, is increasingly facing pressure from their parents. So the security agents in recent years have increasingly gone first to the parents or whatever elder and said, your daughter is creating all this trouble. Go and get her in line. And And... Often the parents totally comply with the authorities, which is just heartbreaking. Um, but then with regard to the marriage pressure, that's also, you know, the, the parents with very ordinary women all across China, um, you know, uh, especially if they're educated, you know, when they're in their mid-20s. By the time they're in their mid-20s, their parents often put a lot of pressure on them to get married. Um, and have children, that I argue is actually part of a very deliberate government propaganda campaign that is stigmatizing these single women. But the government sees and uses parents and the extended family as tools to control young people, which is so frightening and awful and extremely effective. And yet, you still see so many young women continuing with their activism. Very brave. Uh, let's throw it open to the floor. I believe we've got someone on microphone one. Hi, thank you. That was a really uh, fascinating talk, really interesting, something I knew nothing at all about. So um, what I'm interested in is finding out how we can follow more about what the Chinese feminists are doing and maybe even how we can um, practically support them in their work. Yeah, well, um, 
There are now, actually one of the women I write about quite a bit in this book is a woman named Lu Pin who founded Feminist Voices, New Zhengzheng, which was the most influential feminist website and social media account, which was banned last year on the night of International Women's Day. Now she, yeah, I mean the, the hypocrisy of it. Um, she happened to be uh, she happened to be in New York um, when the police were rounding up all these feminist activists in 2015, and she was attending a UN commission on the status of women meeting. And so I'm I'm sure had she been in China, she, there's no doubt she would have been jailed as well. But she is still living in New York. She was at Columbia for a while and. Um, she has started what she calls a new battleground um, in the feminist fight. And she created a group called the Chinese Feminist Collective that's based in the US. Um, you can follow them on Twitter at Feminist China. They're also on uh, Facebook. Um, so there are these different uh, groups that have been formed outside China. So the U.S. is a really uh, important place for Chinese feminists who are organizing outside China. Um, Lu Pin, the founder of Feminist Voices, says that this is really important because of the intense the very hostile political environment inside China. She doesn't think that the movement would be able to survive were it not for, you know, um, these bases outside China. So, um, and they also have a group. Um, there was another group founded in the UK, in Canada. I'm not at all familiar with what's happening in Australia, so I don't know. But if there are any Chinese feminists in Australia, you know, um, you, they can also organize. Um, and the thing is, it, it does show you that as much as the Chinese government wants to totally shut down the internet uh, freedom entirely. It's not able to do that. It also can't control, you know, the movement of people. So the global diaspora of particularly young Chinese women are, is incredibly important for sustaining the momentum of the women's rights movement in China. And so, um, you know, you can you can look up these groups and um, but they're largely for for Chinese people though, and it's, they speak in Chinese for the most part. <laughs> Thank you for your question. Let's um, very quickly go to microphone two. Hi, thank you. Um, as a result of China's one-child policy, they now have hugely disproportionate numbers in men and women. I think it's near about 30 million more women than men at the moment. How do you think uh, this is? 30, it's the reverse. 30 million more men. 30 million more yeah. men. Sorry, yeah, thank you for correcting me. How do you think this is going to affect or is affecting the feminist movement mm. in China? Yeah, well, this is definitely a also a very big demographic problem that the government has been very concerned about for a long time. Um, and it sees that disparity is a uh, real problem for social stability. And um, uh, the, thing, the thing about it is, I don't want to talk too much about the problems related to the sex ratio imbalance because, of course, that was largely created by the government's own one-child policy because of forced abortions um, and even female infanticide. So, um, but how do you think this will actually change? If there are more men, do you think more men will become feminists? Uh, uh, I don't think it really works that way. Um, I mean, I, I have to say, well, there, to. there definitely are, particularly young, in the young generation, yeah. there are definitely progressive young Chinese men, um, especially if they're marginalized, like if they're, you know, queer or um, trans or, uh, or, or, you know, oppressed in some way, then they're much more likely to want to join in the women's rights movement. With, with this movement, do you think more men will sort of, well, I don't want to use the word, but I will, more woke to women's rights? And Well, you know, this is a really interesting question. The thing is that if it weren't for this very aggressive Chinese government inter interference in the internet and in propaganda, um, 
the, I think the young generation in China, including men, is remarkably progressive, actually, mm. um, increasingly so. And, um, and so there are quite a lot of young male allies, but, but it's just such a difficult uh, struggle because the, um, you know, there's natural misogyny naturally occurring in society. And then you add to that, you know, all the government supported misogynistic trolls online. Um, and then you have, you know, the fact that all these feminist uh, websites and social media accounts are being banned. So the, femi the, the space for talking about women's rights is ever shrinking. And so um, it's going to be very, very hard in the coming years. And it's kind of a miracle that this movement has already survived for four years. Um, but I, I want to make one more point about that sex ratio imbalance, which, which is that the feminists, one of the reasons why their movement is so successful is because they choose issues that have that directly relate to the daily lives of young women. The sex ratio imbalance is something that in the you know, aggregate is a problem for the country, but it's not something that you can experience day to day. It's not something that you know, is gonna get women really riled up, whereas you know, so many women um, that have been sexually assaulted or, you know, are discriminated against um, when they're applying for jobs, for example, or are beaten by their intimate uh, uh, partners or, you know, by their parents. Um, there are, so these are the kinds of issues that the feminists choose to focus on um, so that they can have broader appeal. Mm -hmm. uh, microphone one. We're just running out of time, so... You need to make it quick. I'm sorry about that, but you mentioned there's going to be question marks, but for me, I think probably not, probably some more disagreement as well. Because here standing a living creature of Chinese feminists, it's just I want to tell you something about my understanding of your, um, your presentation. That was super, super good. Um, it's also a really, really hard mixture feeling for me because in China, we've never been uh, like public publicized by Chinese mainstream media or something like that. Yeah, it's my second year in Australia before I was always in China, in the biggest city, Shanghai. But the situation you mentioned is the feminism movement in China is not as successful as you may thought. Yeah, and also the lady mentioned that she questioned about like the 30 million more male born in rural area. Like they are basically born in rural area. Mm -hmm. They are not going to grow as male feminists as well. Um, the well, yeah. problem of, uh, you, you mentioned that would be probably a positive impact on Chinese feminism movement. The oh, no, I, I didn't say that. No. Yeah. I like, but it's just, um, it's going to be to really, really negative impact on Chinese feminism mm. act yeah. activity as well. And, um, yeah, the situation now is still really, really bad about, like, more male in China standing out to support female. It's also not the case. Um, the Chinese female in mainland China, we were called as countryside feminist dog on Weibo. The equality of Twitter account. My um, Weibo account was banned year, last year because I was protecting feminism, uh, like anti-feminism um, contents. Like at that day, which was the day that President Xi changed the constitutional law, um, there are so many friends around me. Their Weibo account was banned. Like. The Weibo account was so busy at being um, feminist account or activist account at that day. On the, that's the, like the whole system is out of work. So yeah, the the situation. Look, no, I'm just yeah because there's no question mark. But I'm that's just really really <laughs> no. That's oh, fine. Thank but you it's, for it's, saying it's that. Good. Yeah, it's good. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Um. Yeah, no, thank, I actually, I think, no, I think if you read the book, you'll see um, 
it's really a harrowing experiences that these feminist activists go through. And so when I talk about, yeah, I mean, I'm sorry that you're, it's so common for feminist uh, social media accounts to be banned. And um, so the misogyny is in, incredibly intense. Um, so, but when I talk about, um, you know, when I say that it's a miracle that the movement is still alive, yeah. what I mean is that it's, it, it, compared to other social movements in China, it's such a hostile environment. It's, what I want to say is, uh, you know, I'm, uh, it's a real testament to the determination and the creativity. Share, yeah. share some yeah. my experience about why this movement is still going on. Yeah. Yeah. Like I said, my uh, Weibo account yeah. was deleted yes, uh, last year. That account I've, I have been using for seven years was mm. totally banned. All the content's gone. You can't find it anywhere. Th there are still so many... Um, Account like Weibo users mm -hmm. will also ban their like their contents cannot find anywhere as well. Like, but we create another account to continue our. Protest. Well, this 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 is the yeah, thing. Well, I that, think, yeah, well, that yeah yeah. And, and I think I think I'm sorry. I, I do have to move on to someone else. And I we just, do appreciate it's just, you speaking to yeah, us and give sharing really us your experience. This contents here because yep. in China. In the public, we never have such kind of opportunity. Yeah, you, yeah. thank you. Yeah. yeah, thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks. Thank you. And it is, it's a testament to how, as we mentioned, how creative, how brave these it Chinese is. It is. Are I mean, in terms of you, you, moving the movement around. How difficult yeah, it is. Exactly. I mean, it, yeah. I just want to move on. I'm sorry, we're running out of time and I'm being pressured to leave now. Uh, but I want to squeeze in one last question, if you can right. make it quick. Thank you for that. Uh, my name's Genevieve. I'm a storyteller in film. I'm a filmmaker. And mine is centered around, I'm hearing a lot of the, the issues around legality and banning and all of that has got to do with policies and how they have the right to pull someone off the street if they believe they're a feminist, like the Feminist Five. What can we do to actually put solutions to having more leaders, female leaders, in public policy and government so there is a voice there? to change. Mm. Uh, are you talking about in China? in China? Yeah, so that yeah, they, policy can change. You, yeah, yeah, I don't think you can at all. It's a communist state. They, they pretty much The thing is, own. it's very deliberate. Uh, I believe it's very deliberate on the part of the totally male-dominated Communist Party to not have women in senior positions. And in fact, the representation of women at senior levels of politics has actually declined. It was never good to begin with, but it's actually declined over the last decade to just abysmally low levels. And I believe that's, that's very deliberate, uh, that the government sees, you know, pushing incredibly traditional norms of femininity as being part of its authoritarian control and its own political survival. And I think the outlook, you know, back, getting back to that young woman's comments, the outlook is very grim. Um, what I want to, but, but, but I do, I, 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 I think that for those of us who are outside China and um, we, you know, we're dealing with the rise of authoritarianism all around the world, and we're also dealing with patriarchy all around the world. You know, misogyny, patriarchal control, um, and, and it's getting, in terms of uh, uh, misogynistic authoritarians, you know, it's getting worse. But I don't think we ha can lose hope. We have to keep hope alive. And that's why I felt that that, you know, Qiu Jin's legend of the Jingwei bird is so powerful because we, you know, in the face of enormous, impossible odds, you know, we can still fight and it, it will take more than a lifetime. It may take generations, but we must be engaged in that fight. And this is what I find to be so incredibly inspiring about the young feminist activists is that it is such a grim situation for them in China. And yet 
um, they are continuing the fight and they have basically almost no chance of realizing their dreams of gender equality or freedom in their lifetimes. But, you know, they, they have this community um, that they lift each other up and give each other strength and nurture each other. And that is something, that kind of spirit of solidarity um, coming together collectively and, uh, you know, keeping your hope alive. It doesn't have to be all the time, you know, one person having, being hopeful all the time. But it's so important to, to keep up that struggle and not despair. Mm. Thank you. Thank you. On that note, on that note, we are going to have to end the conversation. Leda, thank you so much for, for talking to us. Thank you so much for your questions. Thank you thank for you. attending. Um, if you want to help, get the book. Uh, Leda is going to be in the foyer. She'll be signing books there. Um, also, I, if, if anything, I, this, you know, I start at the talk by saying there are times where I feel that we in liberal democracies take our liberal freedoms for granted. So when you think that you're standing up for something as a woman, you're standing up for all women everywhere. So continue. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Fazio.